Hey, Merry Christmas, huh? I'll give you a chance to say that to each other in just a few minutes here, but uh, in your bulletin was uh, some of the opportunities that uh, we share together during Christmas season. Let me just walk you through that tonight. What's Christmas without kids? Yeah. So some of us have to go to other things now that we don't have them in our own home. And so uh, come tonight. It will be a lot of fun. The little drummer dude. I mean, how do you get past that title just to begin with? So anyway, and then uh, we'll continue on Sunday mornings at 1030. We have a Christmas Eve service at 5 p.m. That is always very special. And uh, no nursery, no anything uh, outside of just gathering in here. So just bring kids of all ages, and we will be in here at 5 p.m. And then we do a Christmas Day service as well. That's probably one of the most casual services that we do all year long, which consists primarily of people saying what their favorite Christmas carol is and us singing that together and, uh, and maybe some other things that we'll do as well. But uh, what we find is some people Christmas Eve works really well, and some people Christmas Day works really well, and some of us can't get enough of Christmas, so we come both times. And uh, so however that sorts out with your family uh, rhythm of worship at Christmas, I uh, just want to encourage you to jump in and be a part of those. Well, this morning, uh, this whole season, we're looking at the songs of Christmas, the original songs of Christmas. Uh, last week, we looked at the song of Zacharias. This morning, we look at the song of Mary. So grab a copy of the Scriptures and turn over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Thank you, Hannah and Lily, for uh, quoting so much of this for us already this morning. Luke chapter 1, one of the things that's easy to take for granted when we are familiar with the Scriptures and we spend time with the Scriptures is it's easy to forget what a unique uh, invitation that God has given us into some very private conversations that have eternal ramifications and very personal ramifications. Uh, God did not have to tell us about sending Gabriel to Mary, nor the visit to Elizabeth, nor the songs that these experiences provoked. One of the greatest indicators of how much God loves us and how much He wants us to know Him is that He he opens these windows, he opens these doors, and he reveals his heart. He reveals uh, specifics to us that there would be no way to know otherwise. Isn't that the amazing thing about our God, that he has done this? So let me pray, and uh, then we're going to jump in and see what the Lord wants to do this morning. Father, thank you for opening the window of this conversation in some humble home in a town nobody knew of, hardly, called Nazareth, when Gabriel came. And then for this encounter in the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth outside Jerusalem in the hills of Judea someplace, and, uh, and for recording these songs for us. And uh, Lord, thank you that you have some purpose for them in each of our lives today. Um, and so, 
Lord, help these songs to influence us for the first time this morning, maybe freshly this morning, and help them to tune our hearts to sing your praise, to put a new song in our hearts, or to add a few more verses to the new song that you've put in our hearts. As we recognize that you alone are God, and you alone are always good, and you alone love us to such an extent that you would do what you did in the incarnation. So thank you for your presence. Thank you for the way that you're going to shine the spotlight upon Christ and move us to trust him even more. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Before we jump into this account, I thought it would be good just to talk a little bit about the incarnation. Uh, Because the incarnation, the fact that God the Son, God the second person of the Godhead, would leave heaven and become a person is just something that is off the charts unbelievable. Now, I put in your sermon notes some New Testament uh, verses that refer back to that. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He sent His Son. John 1.14, and the Word became what? Flesh, and the Apostle John would say, and dwelt among us. Um, The fact that the Creator had a body created for Him, Philippians 2 reminds us of that, that God was made in the likeness of men. And then Hebrews 10, quoting from the Old Testament, says, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I mean, this is a, this is a crazy, outside-the-box event that is foundational and crucial for us to be saved from our sins and to be reconciled to God. Now, we might add to these New Testament scriptures some Old Testament prophetic scriptures uh, that look forward to this event. And so, let me put a few of these up here for us. Going back to Genesis 3.15, after God has pronounced the curse upon Satan, He says, and I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And this is the first, what they call, proto-evangel. It's the first presentation of the good news when sin entered the world. And of course, Mary is a seed of Adam and Eve, and the child that she is bearing, Christ, ultimately is the seed that was referred to, as Galatian tells us, that that was the specific seed, and he, Christ, shall bruise you, Satan, on the head. In other words, a fatal wound, render you dead, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Yeah, he's going to get to you, and he's going to provide a wound, but it will not be deadly, and the only reason it wasn't deadly is because of the resurrection. And so we have that. And then a couple verses from Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be a child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's the specific verse that Gabriel, or the, I can't remember whether he's named there, uh, said to Joseph when he told Joseph to take Mary as his wife, that this was a work of God. Isaiah 9, 6, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. 
Now, that, just that line captures how the eternal son would be born as a child. And this amazing reality that God becomes a man without ever giving up his deity. And, uh, and then some description about the government will rest on his shoulders and some descriptive names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And then if we go a little bit into the New Testament again to just try to pull all this together, for example, we have in Romans 5, where it talks about the first Adam and Christ. Uh, it says, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, who's the one that uh, all the transgression entered through? Adam. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And actually in the chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Christ is called the second Adam. He got right what the first Adam screwed up. Uh, the first Adam plunged us into sin and be, put us in a place of being enemies of God and in a helpless and hopeless estate before God. And the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to give us this free gift uh, so that we could be right with God, so we could have peace with God. And, of course, the incarnation is where that all began. That's where that event began to take place. And, uh, and so, here's a picture. Whoops. What happened to my picture? There's the picture that uh, I came across. It's a picture of who? Eve and Mary. Now, let me ask you, what, is, what did the artist get right here, and what did the artist get wrong? First of all, what did the artist get right? Pictures can't capture everything, so I know that. What did the picture get right? Okay, we got the snake, and we got the tree, and we got Eve recognizing that her hope for what she and Adam did wrong was in the child that Mary is carrying. What's wrong about this picture? Yeah, Mary's stepping on the serpent. Uh, this, I think, was done by a Catholic nun, and of course, they would exalt Mary beyond what she should. Now, we sometimes can push her down lower than she should be as well, um, but it's not Mary who crushes Satan on the head. It is Christ, the seed of Mary, that does that. And so, the incarnation, the virgin birth, is really a watershed belief. It's a watershed doctrine which separates Orthodox Christians from those who do not believe in Jesus as God. They don't believe in His full substitutionary payment for sin. They don't believe in His resurrection. All of those go very much together. And so, the incarnation and what we're reading in Luke chapter 1 this morning is a big deal. Apart from knowing this, apart from believing this, one cannot be saved. It's, it is that much of a key belief and doctrine. And so, is, this, is Christmas a merry time? Yes, it is. So stand up and say, Merry Christmas. Christ has been born to several people. 
Okay. All right, let's look at this account, uh, beginning there in verse 26. And it may be helpful to know that this is not the first birth announcement given by an angel to people uh, who, who were going to have a child. Uh, there's actually at least three of them in the Old Testament. And in those cases, it was actually the angel of the Lord who brought the birth announcement, which would be the pre-incarnate Christ. And so since he was busy becoming incarnate in the womb, Gabriel got the call. But we have, uh, for example, the angel of the Lord coming to Hagar in Genesis 16, 11, uh, telling her that she will bear a son, Ishmael. And then we have the angel of the Lord coming to Abraham and Sarah. And I want to read some of this because um, in Genesis 18, because you'll see how some of what happens here and some of what Mary exclaims comes probably right out of this passage. Genesis uh, 18, beginning of verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, well, she thought she laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh. That's always a dangerous thing to the Lord, by the way. For she was afraid, and he said, no, but you did laugh. Uh, the angel of the Lord also came to Manoah and his wife to tell them about the birth of Samson. Uh, when she was not able to conceive. So, uh, I think one of the things we'll see about Mary here is that Mary was very familiar with these accounts, I think. It was just part of her upbringing, part of her, um, the way she saw and understood the Old Testament. And so, when the angel Gabriel came, uh, it wasn't without some understanding that this had happened in the past. Well, at the same time, this is really weird that he's coming to me. And so we're told in verse 26, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to an angel, or to, um, I lost my place here, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now let's just pause there for just a moment. The whole idea that God, Mary had found favor with God is, is also something that pops up several times in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, Noah found favor with God. We're told that David, when he was going to move the ark back, found favor with God. It, we're told that Abraham found favor with God. We're told that the people of Israel, while they were in Egypt, found favor with the Egyptian people even. And so the whole idea of finding favor with God is not unique to Mary. And it's basically used to describe a person that God picks and He gives the grace to, He gives the favor to, so that they will accomplish the purpose for which they exist that they're his workmanship, and he has brought them into this world with plans that he has established beforehand, and this is simply a statement to describe that. Thus, it is, shouldn't be a surprise to us that this same kind of a phrase, the word favor and grace are very closely related, is, is how all of the New Testament epistles almost begin. Grace to you, grace to you, grace to you, and what is God saying? You have found favor with God. God is giving you grace. He's giving you favor because He has a purpose for your life. Now, Mary's purpose was unique, but that's a common phrase that is found describing that God is at work in and through a person by His choice and by Him giving His grace. Now, we go on and we find a, quite a description of the child that will be born. And uh, let me just put it here in a list. And let's walk through this. The description of the child given by Gabriel to Mary. And so, beginning in verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And so, something is going to take place in Mary's womb by which she will bear a son. You shall call him, his name, Jesus. And just like we saw with John, Mary had no choice in the naming of her child. Gabriel brought the name from God that this child was going to become. It's a familiar Old Testament name, Joshua, and it literally means Jehovah is Savior. God saves. And so his name is given. He will be great, verse 32. Now, an interesting, uh, interesting history about the word great. Um, the word great, when it is used in the Old Testament by itself, is always used to describe God. When it's used of great in comparison to something, it's used to describe people. And in fact, go back to the announcement about John the Baptist in verse 15 in this chapter. And the angel said, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. 
And so throughout the Old Testament, there's a distinction made between being great in the sight of the Lord or great in the sight of some other people and just great. When the description great is used, it's always used in the Old Testament of God and God alone because, what, there's no comparison for him. He is great. And, and so it's made clear here that that this is God, even by the use of that word and how God used the word great throughout the Old Testament scriptures. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Go over to verse 76. And there John the Baptist is described as your child will be called the what? Prophet of the Most High. And so here again, we see a distinction. John will be a prophet of the Most High. This one will be the son of the Most High. And whenever the word son is used, it's used to describe like father, like son. This means that this son will have the qualities and will have the character of his father, which is God most high. That's a term that's used of God many times in the Old Testament. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now think about this in the world in which uh, Jesus comes into uh, the Old Testament world, our world today. How do people get to positions of authority in, in so many places around our world? They kill the person there, they scheme and connive. Uh, they do all kinds of things. Most people don't have elections. It's how do I scheme? How do I connive? How do I kill the person in power? That's typically the way that people get in power around the world throughout history. But what does it say here? The Lord God will what? Give him the throne of his father, David. This will be given to him from on high. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, Mary's response to this in verse 34 is one of belief, but wondering how this is going to take place for obvious reasons, right? We all get that. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Very different response than Zacharias. Zacharias was based upon disbelief. Remember, what did he do after the angel said that he and um, Elizabeth would have a son? You remember what he did? He informed them about their condition. I'm old. My wife is old. We're past the point of bearing children. Mary does not inform God of anything. I mean, she says, I'm a virgin, but Obviously, this comes out of a belief, and we're grateful she asked this because the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I think there's a link there between he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Most High will overshadow you, and there's a picture there of the Father creating a body for his Son. And the Holy Spirit's involvement in all of that will overshadow you is described of God's work in creation, is described in, 
in the transfiguration, the same word is used to describe the transfiguration. In other words, there's something that is powerfully going on that's beyond words to describe and explain. But here we have the best explanation that words can give us. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. To help her faith, he says, and even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is, was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. In one of the greatest acts of worship, one of the greatest statements of worship, of verse 38, Mary said, Behold the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Isn't that a beautiful statement of worship? That, that's the place God wants to get every single one of us to. Behold, Lord, the bondslave of yours. May it be done to me according to your word. That's the work he's always at in every single person's life. Well, let me, let me, uh, well, with Zacharias, let me, let me get into it this way. With Zacharias and Elizabeth, you'll remember that God informs us of their spiritual condition before God, their spiritual character before God. Back in verse 6, he says, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And yet Elizabeth was barren. And, and, and we do not find a similar description of Mary here. We find the description that she's a virgin. But we don't find a description of her character before God. And I think the reason is, is because her character oozes out in this passage. Uh, you just see who she is as you go through this. I think if God didn't give us the description of Zacharias, especially in his relationship before God, when we saw his response to the angel, we would think, this is just some doofus that can't ever follow God. So we're told about his condition and that his unbelief, that moment of unbelief, was, was not characteristic of who he was. With Mary, her, her character just kind of bubbles out of this whole account. And, uh, and so let's notice this. And let's just say that Mary walked humbly with God. And here's some reasons why that I think just come out of, this, out of this passage. First of all, she knew the history of God and His people. She knew the Old Testament very well. I think she probably took Psalm 1, the introduction to the Psalter, very seriously, and she meditated upon God's Word day and night. It was just part of the warp and woof. And of course, that's probably not just due to her, it probably has to do with the home that she grew up in, but it just seems like that was very much a part of that. Why would we say that? Because when Gabriel speaks to her and talks to her about how he will rule on the throne of David, how he will, he will be of the tribe of Judah, how he will be the son of the Most High God, Gabriel is speaking in terms that she understands. Now, she doesn't understand the full ramifications of it, but, you know, God doesn't send Gabriel and says, speak Chinese, she only understands Hebrew. That's not the kind of God we have. 
He speaks in terms, and Mary has a sense of context to understand these terms. That says a lot about who she is. Says a lot about who she is. In her song that begins there in verse 46 and goes down through verse 55, there are at least 15 discernible Old Testament references. In other words, this wasn't just a song that came out of a vacuum. There was a lot of Old Testament verses and accounts that she had stored up in her heart so that she, first of all, could understand what Gabriel was saying. And secondly, when the song begins to come out, there's this stringing together of all kinds of truths and realities from the Old Testament. By the way, that's the way God always works. And I would say, thirdly, she had her heroes of faith. I think she saw Sarah as a blessed woman. I think she saw Hannah in the whole plea before the high priest and the giving of Samuel and the giving of him over to the service of the Lord and Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. I think all of that was a part of, those were her heroes. Those were her heroes. And so when she says in this song, for, for behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, I'm thinking Sarah had that experience. And all of us have counted blessed since then. Hannah had that experience. And all the people since then have counted her blessed. I, for some reason, and moving into a place like Sarah, like Hannah. That comes out of a rich understanding of the history of God and the history of His people. It comes out of a rich understanding of God's Word. And it's one of the greatest and most important aspects of walking humbly with God, is the Word of God. And God's plan and God's work it is the predominant theme in someone's life. Secondly, she responded to others in humility. She responded to Gabriel this way. And when she asked how this is going to happen, and Gabriel tells her, she doesn't ask for any further description. Now, one of the reasons why she didn't need to ask for any further description is because she didn't have to do anything. She's totally passive in this. She doesn't have to do anything. When God calls us to obey, we have to understand what He's telling us to do to obey Him. Mary wasn't called to do anything. She was, she was passive in this. God was going to do this. Her response was simply one of recognizing her place as a bond slave of the Lord and saying, may it be done to me according to your word. She also responded to Elizabeth with humility. She comes in, as David says, John leaps in Elizabeth's womb when Mary heard the sound, when Elizabeth heard the voice of Mary. And verse 45, Elizabeth says to Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord 
had been spoken to her by the Lord, what had been spoken to her by the Lord. By the way, I'm not so sure that wasn't a subtle dig at her husband. Yeah, Zacharias didn't believe. We haven't been talking now for five months, six months. Now, that not talking wasn't a sin issue. It was a result of his not believing, right? But you believed. Now, I don't know whether this is true or not, but just an observation that sometimes the longer you walk with Christ, um, sometimes the harder it is to believe that God's going to do the impossible. Sometimes life can hammer out of you a childlike faith that what God says he will do. Mary was young. It's probably one of the reasons that God typically uses a young generation to bring awakening and revival. I don't know all the reasons. I wouldn't even pretend to know all the reasons. But I just kind of wonder. And so I say to us who have a few years under our belt, don't let life hammer out a childlike belief that what God says he will do. in a response of, Lord, may it just be done to me according to your word. And so she responded to others in humility. It would have been easy for her to have said, after Elizabeth said all that, to high-fived Elizabeth and says, I'm so grateful for you. I so love you. Thanks for building me up. That doesn't happen. She responds humbly to Elizabeth who has magnified and honored the Lord, and she now moves and honors and exalts the Lord with her own song, beginning in verse 46. The third way we see is humility is that she just honored the Lord with her life and with her lips. We're told right off that she was engaged, verse 27, to a man whose name was Joseph, and that she was a virgin. And we don't want to blow by that. Now, it could have been the normative reality that a young lady would get engaged to a man, and in their culture, that was equivalent to marriage that could only be broken by divorce, even before they started living together, often a period of about a year. But the fact that she was a virgin doesn't mean that all unmarried women were virgins. Their culture had issues in this area just like every culture does. And we're, we come face to face with that, with Jesus, with the woman at the well, don't we? We see that in the woman caught in adultery. And, and so it was, it was a reality in their culture. And by the way, don't think men are off the hook. They just came up with a way to, to live in serial adultery by, by saying, well, God allows divorce for this reason and I can remarry. That's the whole point of of uh, Matthew 19 when they ask him about divorce. They just come up with a spiritual way for them to commit serial adultery and act like they're obeying the law of God. And so there was, there was immorality in their culture, and yet Mary had kept herself pure, and she was betrothed to be married. And then we see the song that comes out of her heart. 
Verse 46, my soul magnifies or exalts the Lord. That's in the present tense. That means her soul just kept on exalting the Lord, just kept on magnifying the Lord. It makes the Lord great. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. What did she know about herself? She knew she needed a Savior. And she knew that God was her Savior. She knew that. And he, she knew that he had regard for her humble state of his bond slave. She had her relationship with God straight. She understood he was the Lord and I'm the slave. And isn't that something God has to do in our lives when we come into a relationship with Christ? Is to recognize that we need to call him Lord, which means master, and I'm the slave. I'm the slave. Now, that's so counterintuitive because it's actually the place of greatest freedom, isn't it? Being a bond slave of the Lord is the place of greatest freedom. Because who wants to live in their own resources? Let's live in the resources of my Lord. Who wants to live based upon their own wisdom? Let's live in the wisdom of, of my Lord. Who wants my plan for my life when the Lord has a much bigger plan for my life? And so it's just a beautiful description of her relationship with the Lord. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And as soon as she gets to verse 49, when she moves into 50, she moves way beyond herself, and she says, and here's how this all fits in God's redemptive work. And his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in their thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever and ever. She had a worldview of God's redemptive work through history on into the future. And that's the major portion of her song. The major portion of her song is not about her. It's how she fits into God's redemptive plan in history. That's humility. That's humility to recognize it's not all about me, and it's not all about my place, and it's not all about my accomplishments. It's really about how all of that fits into this broad stroke of God's redemptive work in history. And what an amazing thing that as humble as I am, Mary would say, that he has called me to be a part of what he is doing. And she makes it clear it's all by his mercy. It's all by his mercy that all of this has happened. Mary walked humbly with God. Mary would be horrified at the way she's worshipped by so many today. She would be horrified. It's so inconsistent with her song. It's so inconsistent with her humility. Now, there's a second point that God makes and emphasizes here that I think is, is something that's easy for us to pass by. Go back up to verse 26. 
Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, if you remember with Zacharias and Elizabeth, he pointed out who they were, and then he pointed out that they lived in the days of Herod. In other words, they lived in a hostile cultural situation. And then we talked about how even religiously, the people had moved away from God. So, so they were exceptions in their own belief system as well as in their political situation. Here, God doesn't say anything about that when it comes to Mary. What he says is he gives a geographic marker here to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, here's what's fun about this. is that most people would think, oh, it makes sense God would show up in Jerusalem. That's the city He's always chosen. That's the city He works in. Oh, it makes sense that He would show up in the temple. Nazareth? Probably the reason it says the city in Galilee is that most people in Israel didn't even know where Nazareth was. They had to be told Galilee so they'd have some idea of the part of Israel that this no-name city was located. And those who did know something about Nazareth, what did they think? Yeah, you remember Philip? After he met Jesus, he found Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph, and Nathanael says to him what? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Everything that Nazareth exports, we don't want. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So almost nobody knew about Nazareth. The people that did know about Nazareth, what? Ooh, nothing good can come out of that city. They're exporting this, 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 and this. They're all harmful, damaging. We don't want anything to do with that. And likely, Gabriel mentions Galilee to, to help people know where this city is that was unknown, as well as to tie it into the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. We looked at verse 6 earlier. For unto us a child will be born, unto a son, a son will be given. But that chapter begins with this verse. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's where Nazareth is. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. That part of Israel was the part that was always abused and used the worst by other foreign nations. It's the hardest to defend. It's the part that first went into idolatry when the tribes split and experienced the harshest judgment of God. And guess where God chooses to bring his Savior into the womb of a woman? Now, he would be born at Bethlehem, but he would grow up and he would do so much of his ministry right there around Galilee. Now, what's the point of all that? What's the point of all of this? 
If you do a search of where the town Nazareth is mentioned in all the Old Testament, guess what? You'll never find it mentioned. So God picks a woman that nobody would have seen as being picked, and he picks a seemingly no-name, good-for-nothing city, and that's where he comes, and he shows up, and he works. So what's the application for us today? Well, do not be the least concerned if you're a woman. God doesn't need another Mary. For us guys, he's not looking for another Joseph. That was a once-in-a-lifetime deal, and uh, we get to look back on that and rejoice in what he did. But God is still doing the impossible. Turn over a few chapters to Luke chapter 18. We have here an encounter between Jesus and a rich young ruler. It's about 30 years later, a little over 30 years later, that begins so well and ends so sadly. Luke chapter 18, a ruler, chapter 18, verse 18, a ruler questioned Jesus saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Wow, don't we wish more people asked us that question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Jesus heard this. He said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, let me just pause there for a moment and say, it doesn't mean that we have to give up all of our riches to follow Jesus. It means that we have to worship Jesus more than anything else. And in this case, money was his idolatry. Money was his security. Money was his sense of value. And Jesus put his finger on it. And in fact, he was stealing. He was stealing from God. He had other gods before God. Verse 24, and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And I think that means very literally what it says. I think that's a camel and a real sewing needle. And I say that because look at how the people heard it. They who heard it said... They said, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. What did Gabriel say to Mary? Nothing is impossible with God. This work of God taking people from being separated from God to being right with God, from being enemies of God to having peace with God is an infinitely impossible work apart from God working. 
It's just as impossible as what happened with Mary having Jesus placed within her womb. It's just as impossible. Do we get that? Now, that was a one-time thing, and, and thankfully God does the impossible by saving people lots of times. But the numbers of times doesn't mean that it's easier or that it's more possible. It's still an impossible work apart from God. And so let's just see if we can sum all this up like this. God is doing the impossible to and in and then through those who walk humbly with God, living in seemingly unimportant places. God is doing the impossible. God is doing the impossible in saving people from the natural consequences of their sin. That's the point of this whole book. That's the main point of this whole book. God is doing the impossible. And if you have turned and you have become a follower of Jesus Christ, you have experienced the impossible in your life. And the only reason happened was because God did the impossible. Amen? And if you've been changed at all since that moment, the only way that happened was not through self-reform. If you've been changed from an angry person to a person at peace, if you've been changed from, from being involved sexually inappropriately to honoring the Lord that way, if you've been saved from looking for your worth in all kinds of things and positions to finding your worth in Christ and on and on we could go, that is an, that's an impossible thing apart from the transforming work of God. Do you believe that? It's true. There's no self-reform of breaking free from that stuff. That is the work of God in our lives. And if God doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. Now, thankfully, we know He's about doing that. And where He begins a good work, He'll bring it to a glorious completion because He is the Alpha and the Omega. And so He does this impossible to people and in them. And then as a result of that, He does it through them into the lives of other people and this is where we go and we develop other people. We tell other people this good news and we develop them to be followers of Jesus Christ. That is a ministry that's impossible apart from God showing up and doing in other people's lives what He did in our lives. Amen? Do you want to be a part of that? I mean, that's what we should hunger and thirst for. That should be this song of understanding. I live my life in the greater context of what God has been doing throughout history. And as accomplished as I am at something, that needs to fit within this greater thing. As you know, many of you know, we went back for my son Lucas's promotion this past week, and we got to meet quite a few of his friends and quite a few of his church friends. And there's a guy that lives down the street from him, and Lucas is trying to get his basement finished, sheetrocked and all that, so people could stay in there <laughs> who were coming out for the ceremony. 
So anyway, I worked with this guy, Dave, Lucas, Dave, and I worked together. So I said, Dave, what do you do? He says, well, they call me the architect for, I didn't even understand what, what he said, quite frankly. So this is my understanding. I'm the architect that figures out software things for things like the Social Security Administration and other places like that. He says, I have about 18 different agencies that I'm involved with, and I figure out what the best system is, and then we implement that. And I thought, oh, my soul. <laughs> I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> but here's the point about Dave. Yeah, he may be the architect of doing all that, but that all fits under the greater architecture of what God is doing in bringing his kingdom. And thankfully, Dave gets it. And he's more about discipling his children and discipling other people to be followers of Jesus because he knows one day he won't have that job anymore. And he understands more fully than anything else, I am the bond slave of Jesus Christ. And I want it to be done according to your will. God, you miraculously saved me. I need more transformation in my life, and I want to get the good news out and help develop other people to do that as well. And I'm convinced to the extent that we get that, God will give us these songs like Mary had. God will give us these songs. He'll give us the songs, the songs form us, and the songs reveal our value system. That's what we're saying. And we're not talking about music with songs here, because some of us would be instantly eliminated. We're just talking about the song, the words of the song. And so I just return back to this again. What song comes out of your heart? What song comes out of your heart when God says, I want to do the impossible in your life? I want to do the impossible through your life. Is it going to be something like, I magnify the Lord. My soul exalts in Him, for He is my Savior. Oh, God, you've been faithful by your mercies to our fathers in the past, even to Abraham, and you will be faithful today. And you're going to be faithful in some places that nobody even knows about. So let me ask you, where do some of you live? Just one at a time. Somebody name where you live. Uh, loud enough so I can hear you, okay? Found Valley. Is Found Valley ever mentioned in the Bible? Does God want to do the impossible there? Yeah, He does. He sure does. Somebody else? Anaheim. Anaheim ever mentioned in the Bible? Nope. Does God want to do the impossible there? Amen. Just plug the name of the place you live in there. It may be unnoticed by all kinds of people, but it is noticed by God. He wants to do the impossible in your life, in my life, and through our lives into the lives of other people. Amen? Why don't you just write a couple verses of song there on your notes as a response to that reality? Maybe... The song of Elizabeth will prompt that. Maybe the song of Mary will prompt that. Maybe his scriptures prompt that. But just write out, out a couple verses. It could be that you'd never come into a relationship with Christ where you're the slave and he's the Lord. 
Just express that in a verse in song. But just go ahead and write out a couple verses of song as a response to the Lord this morning.